From Impact Alpha Media, this is a special episode of Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. June 2017 marked the 10th anniversary for LiquidNet for Good, the corporate impact program I helped launch and oversee. To mark the occasion, we hosted a forum at LiquidNet's global headquarters in New York, featuring three panels exploring what the next decade will look like across the spectrum of impact, philanthropy, impact investing, and business as a force for good. This episode features audio from the panel on the future of effective philanthropy. Mark Gunther, a journalist with Nonprofit Chronicles, moderated the conversation, which featured Faye Tversky, who is the director of the Effective Philanthropy Group at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Dennis Whittle, the co-founder of Global Giving and now executive director of Feedback Labs, and Chuck Harris, the managing director and COO of Blue Meridian Partners, an initiative being incubated at the Edna McConnell Clark Foundation. The first person you'll hear will be Faye Tversky of Hewlett. So I've actually been working on trying to improve the effectiveness of philanthropy for 30 years. That's how old I am. But the last 10 years I will talk about to honor the 10 years of celebration. So I've been at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for uh, the last five and a half years. Had that privilege of uh, launching a new team there, uh, the Effective Philanthropy Group. Um, it's a hybrid team. It's a little bit unusual in the sector in that uh, we seek to strengthen the Hewlett Foundation itself. So we're a large foundation, about uh, $9 billion in assets. Uh, we give away over $400 million a year uh, in many different areas, locally and globally. So my team works in five areas, internal and external. So internally, uh, we work on guidance and support for all of our programs related to strategy, how to develop smart strategies, refresh those strategies, learn from those strategies, how to evaluate our work to make sure that we take risks, but we learn about what is working, what isn't working. Uh, uh, as we were hearing earlier about social return on investment, um, I, I was uh, early in my career, 30 years ago, I was uh, working on one of the first efforts to measure social return on investment with Jed Emerson. We don't quite do that at the Hewlett Foundation now, but we do try to measure our work in a way that is purpose-driven. So um, my team uh, focuses on that. We try to support an active and vibrant learning culture within the foundation. But then we also uh, seek to support a strong philanthropic sector, and we have a couple ways of doing that. But the one that perhaps that I'm most proud of is the one that uh, we've worked on together with LiquidNet and a few other folks in this room, Ford, Edna McConnell-Clark, and others which is a funder collaborative. We started with six funders uh, about three years ago who came together around a table to say, how can we improve philanthropy? And we had to kind of suspend disbelief because we started with virtually a white sheet of paper, how can we improve philanthropy? And we basically set out to improve philanthropy principally through helping foundations hear from the people that we seek to help with our funding. How can we bridge that gap between what we really know to be uh, elite institutions? Foundations are, no matter which way you slice it, and even in the West Coast, we dress down in our foundations, but we are still elite institutions, and how can we bridge that gap between the elite institutions of philanthropy and hearing the voices, the preferences, the perspectives of the people that we seek to help? And the Fund for Shared Insight has 
uh, tried to do that and has made some inroads in helping both nonprofits systematically uh, solicit the views, ideas, perspectives of the people they're seeking to help, whether they're kids in schools or uh, seniors in senior programs or people in vocational programs. What are their experiences uh, receiving services? What are their experiences as customers? How can their insights inform nonprofits so that nonprofits can be more responsive? And how can their insights also inform the considerations and deliberations and decisions of foundations so that we're accounting uh, for them, our ultimate customer. So I could talk more about that and why I'm so excited about that work, but I would say that sort of more or less describes the full range of work that my team does at the foundation and we're really privileged to do to help support a strong foundation and a strong sector. So I do want to come back to that and Forgive me, Chuck, I'm going to skip over you because this leads perfectly to the work that Dennis is doing. It's a little bit of an incestuous group here. Dennis is a grantee of this Fund for Shared Insight, which LiquidNet and Hewlett are funding. So what is Feedback Labs? How are you trying to create those feedback loops so that, in a sense, the folks at the top can learn from all the folks who are um, the beneficiaries, constituents, I don't know what word we most want to use to describe them, people we're trying to help. Uh, yeah, so Feedback Labs is a network of about 300 organizations around the world in the aid sector, the philanthropy sector, uh, not implementing nonprofits, and now even government agencies uh, that are all seeking to ask three questions. What do people, not what do we, but what do people themselves want and need to make their lives better? Are we, as aid agencies, foundations, governments, helping them get it? And if not, what should we do differently? So we're sort of a collaborative and a network and a platform for these groups to come together and ask these questions and to consider different dimensions, such as why is seeking feedback in phase early words the smart thing, uh, the, the right thing to do morally and ethically? And under what conditions is it the smart thing to do? Does it result in demonstrably better outcomes? And then how together can we make it the feasible thing to do in terms of integrating it into our processes? So Feedback Labs is a small team of four or five people that just tries to help all these organizations um, have, uh, have that conversation. And can either of you, Faye, why don't we go back to you, give me one example of where this has worked some nonprofit that said, we listened, we learned, we changed? Yeah. Um, I can give you uh, two. Let's see, I can give you one about a food bank, really interesting, and another about a Center for Employment Opportunities. Let's see, a show of hands, who'd like to hear the story about the food bank? <laughs> who'd like to hear the story about uh, Center for Employment Opportunities? <laughs> Okay, well, we'll... Do them both quick. There we go. That's a, lo a little feedback <laughs> for me. Thank you. Um, so I'll be responsive to that feedback. So Center for Employment Opportunities, you probably know, but for those who didn't raise their hand, uh, they're an organization, they're a grantee of Edna McConnell-Clark, so you set me up perfectly, and also a grantee of the Fund for Shared Insight to do more feedback. So Center for Employment Opportunities works with people coming out of prison, mostly guys, though not exclusively, uh, who are... Uh, wanting to get, get back on their feet, stabilize their lives, and get jobs. So they are the Center for Employment Opportunities. They work with these 
guys. They give them training, very practical training on how to uh, uh, interview for jobs, how to dress for jobs, how to, how to engage as a, as a successful employee in employment situations. During the course of a person's time, the first week with the Center for Employment Opportunities, the, the participants wear a, a, what's called a passport around their neck. All day long, they get feedback from the trainers. All day long, they get feedback like, sit up a little straighter, or speak a little more clearly, or uh, you know, be on time. Whatever it is, they get feedback all day long. And we've made this first opportunity, the Fund for Shared Insight, available to CEO, to the Center for Employment Opportunities, to get feedback. They raised their hands and they said, we think it's time that we get some feedback. Uh, they have been, they are a well-studied program. They know, they've done randomized control trials. Uh, they know that their program works in terms of helping these guys uh, get good jobs. But they thought we can do better and that evidence shouldn't be the end of innovation. I, th I think sometimes those of us who care about evidence think, okay, well, we got the answer. But actually, even when you have evidence, you need to keep innovating, and CEO knew that. And so uh, they, with uh, a grant from the Fund for Shared Insight, decided to get feedback from uh, their participants. And they learned a lot of things. One of the things they heard from the participants was the model is not unlike many of these kinds of models. You have to show up at 7 o'clock in the morning to begin the training. You can't be late. And when they started to ask for feedback, and it's in downtown Manhattan, the program, one of the first pieces of feedback they got was 7 o'clock in the morning is pretty early. You know, we can't, but for us to get here at 7 means that we're just getting home. Uh, we can't see our kids in the morning. Uh, we have to leave before everybody is up. Can we make the start time a little later? And they did. It was like there, there was no rule book. There was nothing coming down from God saying 7 o'clock was the right time. Uh, they responded to the feedback, and they made it 8 o'clock, just treating people with a little bit more respect and encouraging them to be able to spend that time with their family and wake up with their kid, if that made sense. Another example, uh, they had, the participants had to call in uh, at noon uh, on one day in order to get information about a placement the next morning. So they have to call into a call center to see, will I have a job and where will that job be tomorrow morning? So the guys at 11.59 would call into the, into the number and uh, sometimes they would be on hold for 10 or 15 minutes. Some of these guys were coming out of uh, prison. They had calling cards, 36 bucks in their pocket. Every passing minute, their net worth is going down, right? It's not, this is material to them. And so one of the pieces of feedback that they gave to CEO was, can you fix the call center wait times? You know, this is expensive for us. And, so, and at the end of the wait time, most of the time they'd get a placement the next morning, but sometimes they wouldn't. And imagine how devastating that is. You're, your calling card has, has lost 15 minutes of time and you don't have a placement. So CEO took in that feedback and actually it was not uncomplicated to fix the call center. It took a lot of uh, machinations and changing operations, but they got the average wait time down, their last count, down to one minute. So they took that feedback seriously and as a result, they're able to treat their participants with much, much more respect. Let's give Chuck a chance. Chuck, you 
And you know, as, as I hear these stories, by the way, just it, as a, someone who was a business reporter for 20 years before writing about philanthropy, this is sort of you know, customer relations 101 in the business world. It's interesting it's now coming to philanthropy. And Chuck, you, you came out of the corporate world as well, 20-some years at Goldman Sachs. Tell us about what you're doing now, and if it, it has, was the, uh, is your current work informed in some way by your experience in business? Thank you. Um, so Blue Meridian Partners, which is being incubated at Edna McConnell Clark, is a form of a structured philanthropy collaborative, if you will. Um, there are lots of ways to do this, and we certainly don't think ours is the only way, but it seems to be working at the moment, so I could articulate where it came from and what it is. Edna McConnell Clark, 18 years ago, shifted its investment, I'm going to use investment, I mean grant, focus to um, making only a very few, very large, multi-year, equity-like, enterprise-wide funding commitments to the best evidence-based nonprofits we could find serving America's most vulnerable youth. Um, we thought that if we, we helped them build business plans, uh, which helped us get aligned with their board and their management about what we were all trying to achieve collectively, we figured if we did this, uh, others would see it and think it was really groovy and do it, and it didn't happen. Um, so Nancy Rube, our president, tells a story of realizing in 2006 that she needed to learn how to fundraise, which is not the first thing on a foundation president's mind. Anyway, so we've taken our investment model and brought many other funders, individual, living, institutional, legacy foundations alongside us in, in deals that look like private placements in the sense that there's a formal set of documents that guide what each of our roles are, what the, what the grantee is going to be working to deliver, what we're going to do in support of that, how the funders are going to work together. Um, made some really interesting progress in 2006 to 2016 in investments that Edna McConnell Clark put about $150 million in. We brought $450 million of other people's money in alongside that, including the federal government. The average co-investment from somebody else coming into one of our grants over the pre-Blue Meridian period was about $5 million, nothing to sneeze at. We were really proud of that. But, and we were amassing up to $70 million as a group for individual grantees. But we looked at our most advanced grantees and saw that they were serving still a single-digit share of the addressable market for what they do in this country. That didn't feel like success. So we knew we needed more money, which is kind of the end of it we're responsible for. What would it take to get other prideful, accomplished, ambitious, investors, philanthropic investors, to check their ego, or at least a portion of it at the door, roll up their sleeves and work together with us on this. So what we did to, to uh, the theory was if we brought them in as true partners, not after the fact co-investors, that they would be incrementally motivated by that. So we went out to a small handful of our closest high capacity other funder friends, uh, offered them the opportunity to sit down with us at the very beginning, decide where to do research, which domains to do research in, ultimately where to devote the resources to do due diligence. We jointly make investment decisions with the same voting power across all the funders. Um, we, we, the Clark team, Blue Meridian team at Clark, do most of the underlying work, but we bring it at every stage back to the partners for input and decision making. And, you know, the average uh, co-investment in Blue Meridian is closer to $100 million. Um, uh, we've amassed $850 million of capital in our first round. We've committed that in eight projects that are on average $100 million each or more. Um, 
who the hell knows if this is going to work. We're, you know, we're, our prior work suggested that if you fund, if you capitalize an a, a outstanding nonprofit for a five-year plan, you can pretty much count on, if, if things are successful, capitalizing them again for another five-year plan. Um, so we just decided this time, let's recognize this takes a while and let's enter into 10 to 15-year partnerships with our grantees. And Chuck, is it your belief that by amassing more uh, capital and bringing more funders together, you then have the human resources to make sure that money is spent widely? In other words, what, what makes this effective philanthropy as opposed to just larger scale philanthropy? Um, well, it's built on the, on the Clark sort of investment methodology, which has uh, you know, been underway for quite a long time. We've gotten a ton of feedback from both co-investors and uh, grantees over that period, and, and we're, we're quite certain this is working really well for them and particularly for the grantees on the ground in terms of how fast they can grow, how quickly they can uh, improve their program elements, um, uh, how nimble they can become, and, and ultimately, in many of these areas, how they can become large uh, beneficiaries of the massive government funding streams that, that are available for this work. And one more question. How public are you with the research and evaluation your work you're doing with these grantees? Can anyone find it on your website? So at the moment, uh, Blue Meridian is a sub-site within the Edna McConnell-Clark website that will change in the fall, but you, there is a fair amount there. There's a lot more that our partners have, I would say. You know, we're more like a private equity fund than we are like a public research shop. We're, we're investigating uh, alongside a number of other funders, including Gates and Rakes and others, uh, opportunities to put what we've learned online and make it available for a much broader set of people and also to create funding channels that for the benefit of our grantees who need a much broader funding base than our very concentrated hit. So uh, <coughs> evolving the availability of what we're learning, I'd say, uh, but pretty feeling fairly aggressive about that now. Can I add something? Can I jump in? Please. Uh, it, and add, add something to Chuck's answer about why this is effective philanthropy. I'll give a, a simpler reason still, which is that we know that when philanthropists start foundations, they begin on a learning curve. Yeah, five, ten years on a learning curve. They're learning what to do, what not to do, how to hire people, where to focus. And what Blue Meridian does is it short circuits that learning curve. So you've got people with a lot of resources who can have a lot of impact right away. So that, I think, notwithstanding anything else, they are, we always talk about how do you accelerate the journey to impact. Blue Meridian does that in a big way. I want to turn to the future, but before I do, one more quick question for you, Dennis. It, it seems to me that this Fund for Shared Insight feedback loops model works with human services organizations. Does it have any utility when it comes to building social movements? I mean, can you, can you help me tell one environmental organization from another? That was a big question in all of our mind, I think, when we started. Um, and surprisingly, about six months ago, a group of advocacy organizations ranging from Greenpeace to Amnesty to Transparency International asked to have a meeting uh, in Bellagio to discuss this, this very issue. In Bel uh, speaking Bellagio? Of, speaking of uh, elite. <laughs> uh, but they, they were grappling with the challenge that they have. Yeah, how ironic is that? Uh, that is actually hilarious. That is, anyway. I, 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 will, I have no comment. Uh, but they were grappling with the challenge that they have of they were pushing these advocacy campaigns around environmental issues and social issues that were essentially as top-down as anything else that we do. They were making up 
the legislation that they were pushing, the policy reforms they were pushing, and just cramming it down people's throats. And they realized during the course of these days that they never asked the people themselves what they cared about to make the, light, the, the, the earth and their lives better. So even in the advocacy space and in the environmental space, you're seeing some of the leading groups turning to this philosophy. Let's look forward, as Brian suggested. Um, Chuck, how common do you think collaboratives like Blue Meridian will be 10 years from now? Are more foundations going to be doing more things together than they do today? Well, I think yes. I think those of you who've known me for a while, you know, it takes a while to figure out how to do this. I've tried it a few different ways that weren't quite this successful. And so I think people will continue to experiment. At this moment, every week, we hear about another group that is thinking about coming together around some set of common interests. Um, we're set up with the Bridge Band group actually to be an open book on what we've learned and the mistakes we've made for those people. Uh, we're very encouraged, uh, and this ranges from, you know, um, Richard Branson and his elite colleagues, you know, to uh, the Gates Foundation, to, uh, you know, many other, many other people are thinking about the Ford Foundation pulling together other funders. I think what will be fascinating for me to see is whether the groups that come together will devote the dedicated resources th that are required to this work. And the thing that's worked for us at Clark is that I and a couple of other people wake up every morning thinking about our, our partners, that is our investing partners. We have a whole program area that are thinking hard about our grantees, but you gotta be on this in an investor relations kind of framework uh, with constant attention to make it a satisfying experience for your partners. So. Um, I do think there's a lot of will behind this and, and the infrastructure uh, uh, in terms of intermediaries, um, specialized accounting firms, impact measurement firms, all of this is coming together. I'm, I'm encouraged. Um, Faye, for you, nonprofits obviously have an incentive to, to work in this feedback area in particular because their funders are asking them to in some cases. Where do you see the incentives coming into play for foundations to get better at measuring what they do going forward? Well, actually, just a uh, slight correction there, Mark. Uh, we know that nonprofits actually have intrinsic interests in listening uh, to their own customers. Um, there's a lot of uh, research to suggest that, that nonprofits actually do survey their customers. They always have, um, and they have always cared about what their customers think. They haven't always done it well, I would say. You know, sometimes you get data back and you don't really know what to do with it, or you talk to a few folks and you don't know, are they representative? So what we're trying to do with the Fund for Shared Insight is develop a whole range, a whole suite of better tools that nonprofits can use to do more listening. But that motivation really is intrinsic, I would say, to the nonprofit. What we haven't, what we aren't as sure about uh, is how intrinsic it is to funders to do that listening. And, you know, we do know that Center for Effective Philanthropy's recent uh, research that came out this past year uh, where they looked at the future of philanthropy and they surveyed hundreds of foundation CEOs and asked them, among other things, what did they think was going to make the biggest difference in terms of foundation's ability to have impact in the future. And the number one item selected by those CEOs was listening more to the people that they're seeking to help with their funding. 
So almost 70%, 69% of the foundation CEOs checked that. So I think they don't, haven't always known how, but that was a really interesting sign. And one of the things that, um, uh, an article that I will write, uh, I haven't yet done it, but, I, uh, but now that I'm saying it publicly, I, I have to do it, <clears throat> is that you know, we always talk in the measurement world about you know, monitoring and evaluation, monitoring and evaluation, and those two things go together. I actually think they're quite distinct, but I really think that there are really three legs of that measurement stool. That's the article I'm gonna write. It's gonna be, uh, what role does evaluation play? Third party, independent, uh, uh, views and uh, data collection and analysis on a particular effort. Uh, what role does monitoring play? The, the work, the data collection that an organization does itself to track how are we doing on our, on our ambitions. And then feedback is the third leg of that stool. How do we actually listen at all stages of an effort uh, to get feedback from the people that we're seeking to help? It's distinct from monitoring and it is distinct from evaluation. People argue it's part of that, but I actually think that they're, they, they are really three legs of a stool. So I hope, to answer your question, coming back to it, that funders really employ all three of those legs of the stool in order to get smarter about what are we doing that's working, what are we doing that isn't working, and where could we get a lot stronger based on the insights from experts, from organizations, and from real people. If you have a question out there, and I hope you do, we'll have time for a couple after my last one for Dennis, which is, it would be very useful to individual donors who don't have the research capabilities of, of Chuck and his team to know whether a nonprofit, say, is employing a feedback loop. Looking ahead 10 years, would, will I be able to go online and say, you know, this food bank practices feedback in a way that's useful, this one doesn't, therefore I'm gonna give my money to this one. In other words, I get very frustrated writing about this sphere with how much knowledge and information is siloed and hidden from the public. Do you see feedback loops becoming kind of a uh, good housekeeping seal five, 10 years in the future? The answer to that is yes, and I'm gonna explain why, but first I wanna say a couple of things about why it's gonna be even bigger than you think. Good. So when Seth started this session this morning, he said LiquidNet had become successful and grown because it solved our customers' problems. And LiquidNet is quite a phenomenon in the financial uh, services industry. And they became successful not because Seth, uh, I don't even know him, but I'm sure he's smart and could think of a lot of problems to solve, but he built a company that solved his customers' problems not his own analytical, interesting things. I think what we're witnessing, what, what's gonna happen in the next decade or two is philanthropy is going to turn and start solving its customers' problems, the people it seeks to serve. And at the root of what Faye is describing is a, is a, is a, uh, is a posture where we ask people, what are your problems? Can we help you solve them? Let's discuss uh, how we might frame the problems and how we might frame the solutions. And then we, in the same way LiquidNet changes what it does to address its customers' issues, philanthropy is gonna change, or the leading philanthropies are gonna change to help respond to their customers' issues. So we can have a whole session about that, I think, but the, I'm gonna get to your, 
the specific question you have now, uh, but I have to say one more thing before Go I get ahead. there. <laughs> Faye also described some very simple feedback mechanisms. They sound almost deceptively simple. Start at seven instead of eight. Do this instead of that. The impact of those things are huge, even in a static sense. We are consistently seeing increases in student test scores of eight percentile points in, in Uganda, child survival rates of one-third increase in child survival rates, 25% increase in patient survival in cardiac wards. You're seeing huge increases in impact in even just a static sense. Now to answer your question, will we know whether uh, organizations are seeking this feedback or not? Chuck said the future is in collaboration, and Faye talked about the Fund for Shared Insight about uh, being a collaborative uh, effort. That's happening on a much greater scale. We have Michael Thatcher here from Charity Navigator. Charity Navigator, GuideStar, Global Giving, which has thousands of organizations doing feedback. The good news is that they're all getting together. Hopefully, we're helping a little bit of feedback labs to talk about how to create a, uh, a data platform where organizations can show that they're seeking feedback and more importantly, show what they're doing to respond to it so that it gets better and better and better in a virtuous cycle of feedback quality, feedback quality, feedback quality, all fed by donor resources. So we'll check in with Michael in 10 years. If it doesn't happen, it's basically Michael's uh, <laughs> fault right there. So. So we have to keep things moving here. I got a signal uh, that unfortunately we can't take an audience question. I do apologize for that. Um, we're, Brian, you changed your mind. Quick one? One. Twitter-like question. Sure, you got your hands up quick. Uh, hi, thank you for a really interesting panel. I'm Michael Hirshhorn with the International Human Rights Funders Group. So foundations, social investment funds, because they work with so many different local or grantee organizations, people they serve across many areas doing similar things, get a bird's eye view of activities, of methods, of what works, what doesn't work, so that many, many grantee organizations, local organizations don't get. So in addition to the, the importance, the centrality of you know, the feedback from the ground, how do you balance those out? You, because it, in my experience, it can't just be a pure process of putting aside everything we've learned by seeing patterns across multiple grantees, seeing solutions that have been developed in one place that could be applied to another, et cetera. How do you balance out the, your efforts to, to um, elevate the priority of feedback from the ground with some of the perspectives that foundations and social investment funds do have on seeing patterns across time and place? Um, well, you know, it's a good question. I mean, I think like anything else, right? If you're trying to, you're looking at a problem and you, and, you, and you ask yourself a question about, well, how might I go about trying to solve this problem or contribute to solving this problem? One of the first things I might do if I'm a responsible analyst is I'll look at studies that have been done to, what has been done before, right, to solve this problem. And most of the time, the studies don't really agree, right? You, you know, there's, there, even the best studies will, will sometimes give you some contradictory evidence. Um, and then you have to sort of make sense, well, this one was done in this place, this time was done another little, another time. And you talk to experts usually. Uh, you, you, you look at a pattern of different grantee performance. So there's lots of things that you're putting into the puzzle all the time to inform your judgment about what to do. 
And I think what I would argue about feedback from the ground is it is um, a missing piece of the puzzle. Not the most important piece necessarily always, but a piece that has been uh, undertapped. So I would just say that piece has been missing. Let's plug up that part of the puzzle and put that piece in uh, and make it as prominent as it should be in all of our considerations. In our investment approach, we try to take that, those concerns into account and in our sort of going in research is quite exhaustive and relies on a lot of other people's work, not just our own. What we've done much less well is sharing what we learn in that process beyond the walls of our own co-investors and ourselves and our, our trustees. So um, I, th I think we're probably not the right parties to build that platform, but we've got the content and we're act actively looking for the right platforms to put that work out there. You know how easy it is to get research on the uh, oil and gas industry if you're thinking about buying some stocks. It, we should be able to do the same thing here. That's a great point. That's, that's a great place to finish. So please join me in thanking Faye, Chuck, and Dennis. That's going to do it for this special episode of Returns on Investment. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts these days and tell others about it by leaving a rating and a comment. For more on impact investing, be sure to subscribe to Impact Alpha's daily email newsletter at impactalpha.com. Thanks to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thanks, Isaac. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Returns on Investment. We look forward to speaking again soon.